Well, the seventh verse of Jude's epistle features the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So we want to begin with where would we find the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible. And you can cheat by looking at your marginal references. Does anybody know? What book of the Bible would it be in? It's in Genesis, chapters 18 and 19. So if you'll turn to chapter 18, verse 16, the entire story is in those two chapters. But I want to look at verse 16 because these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, belong to a larger region. And you'll notice in Genesis 18, 16, that Abraham sends these men off down towards Sodom. Now, if you turn over to chapter 19, verse 25, at the end of God's act of destruction against Sodom and Gomorrah, you'll notice that he overthrew those cities and all the valley. Now, if you have a marginal note in your Bible at that word valley in verse 25, you'll notice your margin may say circle. This is a very interesting Hebrew word. It's a word that creates the picture of a vista in a circle. Like a circle of cities, which is what is being portrayed literally by the term. So Sodom and Gomorrah were part of a circle of cities. So the question is, how many cities were in this circle? And we turn back to chapter 14, verse 2. And I'll let one of you read it when you get to it. Genesis 14, 2. Very good. And how many were there? There are five. So there are five cities in this region. And in some older versions of the Bible, they are called the cities of the plain or the cities in the plain of this valley. Once again, that Hebrew word, which is quite pictorial, that as Abraham looks towards Sodom in chapter 18, verse 16, he's looking at a circular plain, a circular valley, rather, on a level plain within that valley and the five cities of the plain in that kind of semi-circular or circular configuration. So Sodom and Gomorrah are not alone in their... Uh, location in this region. So where is this region? Where were they located? And you'll notice in verse 3 of Genesis 14, if you still have your Bible open there, they are at, they are in the valley of Siddim, which is the Salt Sea. What's the Salt Sea? It's the Dead Sea. All right, now, 
The traditional location then of Sodom and Gomorrah geographically was that they were at the south end of the Dead Sea. And as uh, recently as the 1960s and into the 70s, uh, one of my former professors in uh, Pittsburgh Theological Seminary uh, had done some uh, early archaeological work at the south end of the Dead Sea and had found some remnants of tar and pitch and so on and so forth. And also some indications of uh, of uh, uh, fragments and pottery, which seemed to be very old. His name was Paul Lapp. He tragically died in a swimming accident. He drowned off the island of Cyprus in 1970. Uh, but at any rate, uh, his uh, students, two of his advanced students, also did some work there uh, in the 60s and 70s to confirm what he had uh, first of all noted and they wrote several major articles on the location of Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain at the south end of the Dead Sea because of some of the uh, material that was located or found there. Now, that's not a universally accepted identification. In fact, uh, most Bible scholars aren't sure where Sodom and Gomorrah are located, and they don't think it was at the south end of the Dead Sea. In part, they don't think so because they think that this is a myth anyway. <clears throat> it's, a, it's a fabrication. It's not a true story. It's been invented. <clears throat> but uh, in any event, this is the traditional association because of that third verse of Genesis 14. All right, so we have the general uh, geographical Location of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now we go back to the epistle of Jude and to the phrase in this seventh verse, they in the same way as these. Now I'm quoting the New American Standard, so it would be in the line, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged, etc. Now, the question here for us is, what does this phrase, they, in the same way as these? They, referring to Sodom and Gomorrah. These, referring to whom? Well, let's try verse 6. What's Who, who is being referred to in verse 6? The angels, all right? So... Perhaps his antecedent to that relative pronoun, these, is the angels in verse 6. All right, now, if that is the case, if in fact the these in verse 7 is the angels of verse 6, what would that suggest that these, as they, were doing? Point after yeah, they'd be involved in deviant sexual practices, correct? <clears throat> All right. The angels, as we noted last week, uh, having intercourse with human women, which would lead us back to the question of, <clears throat> of, of sexual deviance in Genesis 19. So let's go back to Genesis 19, verse 5. And what do we find of the desire of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah with respect to the visitors who had come to Lot's house? And they called to Lot and said to him, 
Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Now, the King James Version translates that, that we may know them, which is the most intimate kind of knowledge. That's the knowledge of sexual intercourse. So these are sexual relations, which raises the question about who the angel visitors were. You'll notice that they are called men in verse 5 of this passage. That is also true in verses 10 and 12 of chapter 19. And as we look at verse 4 of chapter 19 of Genesis, we notice that the men of the city, the men of Sodom, are surrounding the house and asking Lot to bring out these other men. So that the desire of the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah is the desire for homosexual relations. Well, that's a problem then with respect to how we are interpreting verse 6. Because if the these in that phrase in Jude 7 is referring to the angels, it would then color the interpretation of the angelic deviance, it would be sexual. And we rejected that in our last meeting, you will recall. We indicated that there's nothing in Jude 6 or the rest of Scripture that suggests the possibility of angels having carnal intercourse with humans, let alone human women. Well then, we remind ourselves of why we rejected that mythical suggestion. Namely, that Jude 6 is about the rebellion of the damned angels. It is not about deviant sexual intercourse between angels and humans. And that rebellion, in verse 6, casts those damned angels into the lowest hell. All right, so the these is not referring to the angels with respect to some kind of deviant, sexual deviance like is present in the Sodomites or the the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah, well then, to what does the they in the same way as these refer? If it doesn't refer to a parallel kind of sexual deviance, okay, then what does it refer to? And it refers to that line in verse 6 in which they abandoned their proper domain. They abandoned or moved away from their proper abode. All right, now how does that fit verse 7? All right, let's remind ourselves of what happens in verse 6 with the angels rebelling against their proper domain, their proper abode. The angels rebel against the order of creation. They rebel against the order of creation. They rebel against the order of their creator-creature relationship. They rebel against God who made them. They, the creature, raise their rebellion against their maker. So, having left their abode, abandoned their proper domain, they do so in rejection of the proper order of the creator-creature relationship. So having acted contrary to their created role, 
which was to obey their creator and to serve him. The angels are the messengers of God. They are his servants. So these damned angels refuse to serve God. They refuse to be his messengers. They instead abandoned their proper role and became rebel angels, refusing to give their creator his proper due as they in their proper creature relationship owed him. All right, now, the these then of verse 7 with respect to Sodom and Gomorrah is also a rebellion against the order of creation. In other words, what we have here are two verses which are indicating that there is a rebellion against the proper order of creation. In the case of the angels in verse 6, it's a rebellion against the creator-creature relationship. In the case of verse 7 and Sodom and Gomorrah, it is a rebellion against the order of creation in this regard, that the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah reject the proper or heterosexual relation for strange flesh, as Jude names it. Strange flesh. Sarkos heteros in the Greek, which is below that, which is in your outline. All right, so there's a rebellion against the created order in both instances. In the first instance of verse 6, it's a rebellion against the order of the creator and the creature. In the second instance, it's a rebellion against the proper sexual order which has been placed by the creator in the creation. What does Jude then mean by this phrase, strange flesh? Now, I translated it literally, flesh other or flesh different. We would, in English, prefer to say other flesh or different flesh. And the question here is other or different from what? Well, keep in mind, this is a rebellion against the order of creation. So other or different here is other and different from that which was proper, proper to their sexuality as created by God. Heteros here is not referring to heterosexual relation. It is referring to something which is other or different from the order of creation. The sexual complement for man in God's created design is woman, not man. Genesis 2, verse 20 and 24. I will make for him a helpmate, a complement. The complement in the order of creation is woman for man, not man for man. And the sexual complement for woman in God's created design is man and not woman. It is man for woman, not woman for woman. So that Jude goes on to indicate that this desire or this lust after strange or other different flesh is immorality. Now, some of your versions like the New American Standard may have an adjective attached to that immorality, gross immorality. It is true that the word he uses here, which is related to pornography, 
It is true that the word that he uses here can have a stronger sense. However, there is no separate adjective gross in the text. So it is an implication of the stronger form of the word for immoral that he uses. However, leaving, uh, leaving that matter aside as a technicality, the immorality here is Jude's label for what was done by the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. It is the, the inspired writer's label for male figures seeking sexual relations with male figures. That is immoral. Immoral because it is unnatural. That is, it is contrary to proper sexual relations, which is heterosexual within the bond of marriage. Now, when we say unnatural here, we're talking about the order of nature by creation. We're talking about the way God has made natural gender-based distinctions. That is part of the gene pool. That's part of the chromosomes. That's part of the makeup of the human being as God created it and made it in his own image. All right, so this immorality then leads us to Paul's own doctrine of sexual chastity, sexual chastity outside the bond of marriage. So keeping your finger there in Jude chapter, Jude verse 7, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and let's read out verses 9 to 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11. Do you not know that the right unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. For thieves, not, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Thank you, Pam. All right, now you'll notice who shall not inherit the kingdom of God, according to Paul in this passage. And you notice he duplicates that phrase, kingdom of God. He says it twice. Who shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Fornicators, amongst others. Fornicators meaning unchaste sexuality outside the marriage bond. Adulterers will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. That is, those who practice illicit sexuality outside the one man, one woman marriage bond. And Paul says that homosexuals will not inherit the kingdom of God, which is immoral sexuality, apart from the purpose of the male and female sexual organs as created by God and natural to each gender. But let us also observe that some of the Corinthians were fornicators. They were adulterers. They were homosexuals. They were drunkards. They were swindlers. 
There's a whole list of types of immorality here, and Paul doesn't single out any one worse than another. He's lumping them all into the same basket of that which excludes from the kingdom of heaven. So, we are reminded that there were those in Corinth who had led this lifestyle, promiscuous fornication, adulterous uh, extramarital illicit sexuality, and homosexuality. There were members of that church that had lived that lifestyle, but they were washed. They were justified. They were sanctified. They were cleansed. Their lives were transformed. And it was, and it happened because of the work of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So the point here about Paul's exhortation is that the kingdom of heaven is closed against impenitent fornicators. It is closed against impenitent adulterers. It is closed against impenitent homosexuals, but penitent homosexuals, penitent adulterers, penitent fornicators are welcome in the kingdom of heaven because they are no longer fornicators, adulterers, or homosexuals any longer. They have been transformed by the justifying grace of Christ, which Paul notes here, the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, which Paul notes here. In other words, the power of God is greater than the power of that sexual lust. The Corinthian church had people in its membership that had once upon a time lived this immoral lifestyle. And the power of God was great enough to break the bondage of that sexual deviance and to transform them into new creatures, men and women, new creatures in Christ Jesus by the cleansing and transforming and regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. But let us have no misgivings about what Paul says here. No one who lives that lifestyle impenitently will enter the kingdom of heaven. That is not Denison's statement. That is the Apostle Paul's statement. That is the statement of the word of God. That is not a matter of intolerance. It is ultimately a matter of the greatest affection because it is the greatest warning and the greatest act of benevolence to warn a promiscuous teenager that they are not going to go to the kingdom of heaven as long as they keep sleeping around. To warn an adulterer who is promiscuously related to other women when he's married to another spouse or a woman who is in the same position that they are not going to enter the kingdom of heaven as long as they live that lifestyle. And to say to any homosexual that as long as they live that lifestyle, they are barred from the kingdom of heaven. That is what the Apostle Paul says. That is what the Bible as a whole says. 
And it says it in order to warn as well as to invite. To warn by inviting. To invite by warning. To indicate that if you want to go to heaven, your life must be changed. It is the same invitation which has come to us. Whether or not we have been abandoned to any of these particular sexual deviances or whether we have been swindlers and drunkards or murderers or thieves, etc., etc. The list could include us, even though we may have been more or less sexually chaste, because we too have been guilty of immorality. We too have been guilty of disobeying the law of God. We too stand in need of the justifying grace of Christ Jesus and the sanctifying cleansing of the Holy Spirit. We too know that. So that even if we are not guilty of these notorious public sins, which Paul lists here, we realize that our sinfulness, as great as it is, though it may not be this great, but as great as it is, is still a sinfulness which bars us from the kingdom of heaven. If we are Sabbath breakers, we're not going to go into the kingdom of heaven. If we are unrepentant Sabbath breakers, we're not going to go into the kingdom of heaven. That is a law of God which you do not break with a hit, with shaking your fist at God. That I'll do what I want on the Sabbath day. You're not going to go into the kingdom of heaven unless you repent of that. If you're a swearer, if you, if you take God's name in vain, if you routinely say, oh, my God, or good Lord, or all that kind of stuff. You're not going to go into the kingdom of heaven. God says, you don't use my name that way. You're not going to come into my house and talk that way in my presence. Get rid of it. You need to have your tongue regenerated, your mouth cleaned out. If you don't honor those in authority over you, you're not going to go into the kingdom of heaven. If you argue with your parents all the time, if you curse the president of the United States all the time, you're not going to go into the kingdom of heaven. That's a sin. You don't have to agree with the president of the United States, but you don't curse his name. You honor the office, even though you don't honor the man. Doesn't mean you have to to to, uh, to uh, agree with what he's doing, and it doesn't mean you can't try to vote him out. But the point is, you honor those in authority over you. You don't degrade them. Same way with lying, covetousness, greed, etc. <clears throat> If we go down the list, there isn't anything in the list of the Ten Commandments or not in that list that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 9. My point is that we're all in the same boat. We're all sinners by nature. We're all sinners by origin. We're all sinners by actual commission of sin. We all need the same regenerating grace of Christ. Whether we're fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, swindlers, drunkards, or just plain old ordinary common sinners. We all need the same grace. So there's no discrimination here with respect to the degrees of sin. All sinners need the same remedy. And Jesus Christ has come to provide it. And he's provided graciously and willingly for promiscuous fornicators, as well as for adulterers, as well as for homosexuals, it is there, come and welcome. Come and welcome. Christ invites you. No stigma on your past. No stigma on your previous lifestyle. Come and welcome to Christ. He will clean you up. And he will make you new.
He'll wash you whiter than snow. And he'll cleanse all the stains from your life. That's the power and the guarantee of the Lord Jesus and the indwelling Holy Spirit. But apart from that power, what does Jude say about the consequence? What was the consequence for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? The punishment of eternal fire. The punishment of eternal fire is that consequence which belongs to any unrepentant sinner, not just the unrepentant sinners of Sodom and Gomorrah. Drunkards, swindlers, covetous, greedy, murderers, thieves, etc. All of it is a barrier to heaven and an open door to eternal fire. Any questions before we take the next page, which is a kind of summary of this issue? Yes, go ahead. Um, I, I didn't quite get this analogy, or comparison to the, the men that were in Sodom and Gomorrah. They, they were actually men. They are men abandoning their proper role, their proper domain, their proper uh, their proper arena, which is heterosexual relations. No, no, the, one, the, the two men that wore the lot that came to his house. Oh, the, the, those are angels. Okay, the, those are angelic men. They, were they men? They were men. They're called men in the text. Yes. Okay. So the men of Sodom want relations with the men that have come to Lot. Okay. Yeah, Scott? So you don't think those are angel offices that appear as men. You think they're messengers who are really physically human beings. Well, they're angels who are an angel offices, yes. But they have male characteristics. Right. David? Uh, what comment do you have about Locke? <coughs> is declared... Uh, righteous, vexed in his soul because he was accommodating to uh, the sinfulness in Sodom. Well, he's vexed in his soul, as you indicate, by living amidst it. And I, I think that uh, Lot is guilty uh, when he separates from Abraham originally and settles in Sodom. He's guilty of, shall we say, the lust of the eye, the more pleasant valley land in that circle that he sees laid out before him. And when he enters the city and begins to live with his neighbors, he realizes that that it is not what he expected. So he's vexed in his soul because of what he's more or less trapped in, or at least what he doesn't want to leave uh, voluntarily, and is compelled to leave. It's the angels that have to grab him by the hand and rescue him from the city when the destruction is imminent. Yes, Nancy? Okay, then the angels that left their first estate or um, their, their own habitation, um, were you indicating that um, these angels were giving themselves to fornication or was Jude actually saying that um, the men of that city were, not the angels. Yes, yeah, the men of the city were, not the angels. Yeah, not the, the, these angels, angels in verse 6 are not the angels that are coming to visit Lot. Lot. Okay. Right. 
All right, now over to page two of the outline and summarizing then this phrase, they in the same way as these, but now in a cumulative manner. And I'm suggesting this for verse five, because keep in mind that this is the first example, first set of examples that Jude uses, and they are all three from the Old Testament. So this is the first series of Old Testament examples, and there are three of them in the series. Therefore, I'm going to suggest that this phrase, they, in the same way as these, is cumulative. It is even referring back to Israel in verse 5. All right, now how do I, how do, how do I explain that or how do I justify that suggestion? <clears throat> Let's remember that in verse 5, Israel in the wilderness abandoned their proper arena. They abandoned their proper role. Now what do I mean by that? <clears throat> well, they rebelled in unbelief against their faithful and trustworthy Lord. They rejected his arena. They rejected his domain. They rejected the arena and domain of God, which is life. And they chose death in the wilderness, outside his arena, outside his domain, outside his abode, outside his rest. They chose death instead of life outside of heaven, and their carcasses dropped in the wilderness. So that the phrase in verse 7 also reflects back upon the experience of Israel in the wilderness, who did not keep their proper abode, their proper domain, which was faithful submission, faithful trust, confident reliance upon God's promise and rebelling against it. You see, they forfeited God's domain, which is life eternal, everlasting rest. I swore in my wrath, Psalm 95, they will not enter into my rest. That is heavenly rest. All right, what about the angels? All right, in verse 6, the angels abandoned their proper arena and domain which was the role of joyful service in submission to God and his glory. They were created to serve God in joy and delight and to glorify him in all that they did. They rebelled against that. They abandoned that heavenly life for hellish death. He cast them down into eternal darkness. Notice what has been abandoned. Life for death in both Israel in the wilderness case and in the angelic, the damned angels case. What do we come to in verse seven? The inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah abandoned their proper domain or their proper order of sexual relations. And they delight in sexuality with which God endowed them by creation. That is, they rebelled against that sexuality, the delight in that sexuality with which God endowed them by creation. And they transformed that into a perverse sexual delight in uh, male upon male or female upon female sexuality. They rejected the life of God's created order and received death as a consequence. In each case, 
It is an abandonment of a proper created order, which leads to death instead of life. Having abided in that proper order, whether it was in faith in the wilderness, whether it was in submission in heaven with the angels, or whether it is with proper order of human sexuality in Sodom and Gomorrah, they abandon it, they abandon the arena and abode of life, and they choose death in its place. So, with verse 5, 6, and 7, there is an eschatological severity which is laid out. Now, death is there in each case. That is certainly severe eschatologically speaking. But there is a cumulative or unfolding progression in the severity of that eschatological finality. Notice in verse 5, they are destroyed physically. Their carcasses drop in the wilderness. In verse 6, they are bound in eternal chains in eschatological darkness. So what could be worse than physical death? To be bound in chains in eternal darkness. And what could be worse than being uh, physically dead or being bound in eschatological darkness, undergoing eschatological fire, eternal fire, verse 7. Notice the severity which unfolds is increasingly severe in terms of its progression. All right, now, if my suggestion is correct, namely that there is a summary force in this phrase, they in the same way as these, then it reflects not only back to verse 6, it reflects to verse 5, and it combines with a cumulative progression, an unfolding cumulative progression of eschatological severity or the judgment of the eternal state. The eternal state is a state of death. It's a state of eternal death. The eternal state is a state of darkness. It's a state of eternal darkness. The eternal state is a state of, of uh, torment. It is a eternal fire. That is the hellish eternal state. Heaven is just the opposite. It is the very antithesis of that. All right, now, that leaves one more question about that phrase, turn the grace of God into licentiousness, which began this discussion back in verse 4. Remember, in verse 4, Jude talks about the persons that have intruded into this Christian community to which he is writing. And he accuses them of turning the grace of God into licentiousness. And then he gives the examples of the wilderness generation in verse 5, the angels in verse 6, and Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 7. How then is are these three Old Testament examples in verses 5, 6, and 7 epexegetical, that is, they're expanding upon the interpretation of that phrase, those who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. All right, now let's think about the intruders that have crept in in verse 4. What are they doing? They are turning the external appearance of faith into its opposite, namely an evil heart of unbelief, and thus undermining the community of faith by their antinomian or licentious behavior, especially licentious sexual behavior, because that word licentious in verse 4 refers to licentious sexual behavior. So the intruders, like that wilderness generation, pretend to have faith, 
In fact, they have an evil heart of unbelief like that wilderness generation had. And they use that pretense of having faith in order to engage in licentious behavior. They turn the grace of God, which would bring you out of licentious behavior, transform you from licentious behavior, transform you from immoral sexuality, and they practice it, claiming that because they have faith, they have an elite right to do what you do not have a right to do. All right, now with respect to verse 6, these intruders turn the proper domain and role of submission. Notice what it says in verse 4, to the Lord and Master Jesus Christ, into rebellion, just like the angels did. They disobey the Lord and Master Jesus Christ. They, in fact, are at enmity against the Lord and Master Jesus Christ. They do not love the Lord and Master Jesus Christ, even as the damned angels did not love God, their creator, but rebelled against him. So the very thing that Jude opens this letter with, namely, beloved in God the Father, and love be multiplied to you, the very love which is key to the Christian relationship to God is is denied by the damned angels and is denied by these intruders, no matter how they pretend it or play the game. They do not love God. They hate him and turn his grace into licentiousness. Now, with respect to verse 7, these intruders, once again, notice these three examples of 5, 6, and 7 are a reflection on the character and behavior of the intruders who have been named in verse 4. These intruders turn the proper use of sexual organs to immoral lusts such as fornication in general, namely promiscuous premarital sexuality and extramarital adultery, fornication in general and homosexuality in particular. They rebel against the proper use of the sexual organs and relations. And in so doing, they abandon themselves to licentiousness and deny the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ thereby. All right, now, the language and imagery of verse 4, namely licentiousness and Sodom and Gomorrah, places the spotlight upon the sexual relation. It is not exclusively the only issue that these intruders are undermining as we will see as we move later, move on down in this epistle. So I don't want to overemphasize this. Nonetheless, it is a key element in their agenda. Their agenda is to undermine the sexual chastity, the sexual morality, the sexual purity of this Christian community. And they do so with abandon and also with deceit. Which leaves... Our observation in conclusion of this part of our analysis of the text of the gospel invitation. I've underscored that already. I want to reemphasize it. The Christian community is not the enemy of the homosexual. The Christian community is not the enemy of the adulterer. The Christian community is not the enemy of the promiscuous teenager or adult or even adult. Fornicator. 
the Christian community is the friend and has love towards them in the sense that we wish them well. In fact, we wish them the best of all well-being. Namely, we wish them the kingdom of heaven, which is open to them in repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the surrender of their immoral lifestyles and the embrace of the purity of the life before the face of God. Not an immoral lifestyle of unbelief like Israel in the wilderness. Not a obstreperous lifestyle of rebellion against their creator like the angels who were cast down into the lowest hell. And not the lifestyle of deviant sexuality like Sodom and Gomorrah, but a lifestyle of purity, a lifestyle of faith, a lifestyle of submission to the God who made them. We invite the homosexual to that gospel grace. We invite the adulterer to that gospel grace. We invite the fornicator to that gospel grace. And we do so with the plea that they may come to Christ so that they may come to the kingdom of heaven. Come to Christ that they may come to a new life in Christ Jesus. Come to Christ that they may be washed and cleansed of that which holds them in bondage, bitter bondage, holds them in the degradation of their own humanity, the degradation of their own sexuality. Come to Christ and be released from that degradation, from that enslavement, from that bitter bondage. Come to Christ and be set free. And you enter sat across the table from transformed lesbians and sodomites, you would understand why they weep for joy. I had the experience of doing this in 1978, the conference of gay and lesbians. And in that conference were present converted gays and lesbians. And their testimonies were moving and powerful, if not emotionally poignant. They testified to how Christ had delivered them from the chains of their bondage. They rejoiced in the marriages that they had made up, those who were married. They rejoiced in the fact that the grace of God had not abandoned them and someone in the church had taken time to offer the gospel to them and to invite them to the liberating freedom in Christ Jesus. I will never forget it. I will never forget the tears in their eyes. I will never forget the smiles on their faces as they talked about how Jesus had delivered them and made them new men and women in his grace. That is the message we have. It is the message of the greatest love that can be offered. Not the love of a fornicating relationship, not the love of an adulterous relationship, not the love of a homosexual relationship, but the love of a divine relationship, a heavenly relationship. A relationship which is eternal. That is the message that only the church can offer. And if we do not offer it, you see... We have abandoned them.
to the consequence of their lifestyle. Now, it is conceivable that they would harden their hearts against it, but nonetheless, there's no other place where the message is going to be heard. It is the only way for them to be saved. Paul said, no one who lives these lifestyles which he lists will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not you, not me, not any human being, male, female, or child on this earth. We thank God then for what we commemorate on this Reformation Day, 2013, the justifying grace and faith of Christ Jesus, which is powerful enough to set a Roman Catholic monk free, as well as a whole host of Lutherans and Calvinists and even Anabaptists, etc., who sprung up out of those 95 theses in that act of, shall we say, Christian rebellion, biblical rebellion in 1517. David, you've been patient. Go ahead. I agree 100% with you, but we seem to me we have a concomitant duty for um, our obedience to uh, our country to speak out about the stresses that are tearing our country apart. We've gone farther than Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, about 2005, there was some Boeing engineer that had sex with his horse. He died as a result. And in the scholarly article in the Barnes, about a year later, it was argued that he had a constitutional right under the due process clause of the Fifth Amendment to do this. I mean, they don't come from the same universe I come from. And our society cannot uh, persist with these stresses on it, with uh, child sacrifice called abortion. Uh, just It's breaking down all around. We're, we're not going to have a country very much longer. David, I'm sympathetic to what you say, but bestiality is nothing new under the sun. You can understand the Mosaic legislation against it because it was very common in ancient cultures. So the, the uh, imagination of sexual perversion, which is breaking upon us, uh, uh, is, is not brand new to the history of sinful mankind. Whether or not this country can survive such uh, breakdown, that's another issue, but there is nothing new under the sun. I'm not defending it, but at the same time, it's not new. It's been there before. <clears throat> Any other questions or comments? All right. Well, we'll come back in five minutes. And we'll take a look at the language of this uh, sixth and seventh verse, which appears to be somewhat contradictory. As we return to this passage, I want to begin once again with John Milton. And one of his remarkable lines from Paradise Lost. 
He's describing hell in this line, which, of course, is the subject of the opening book of Paradise Lost, Satan being cast down into hell. We noted that passage on our outline last time. And here Milton, in his inimitable style, says that hell is as one great furnace flamed. Yet from those flames, no light, but rather darkness visible. Darkness visible. Glad you smiled, Marge. It's exactly what every poet should do or every person who loves words should do. This is a remarkable juxtaposition. But it is not specifically original to Milton, or at least it's not unstimulated by the Word of God, which reminds you that Milton knew his Bible, knew it very, very well. For he's citing an allusion to Job 10.22, a land of darkness and of the shadow of death, where the light is as darkness. All right, now the biblical writer uses a metaphor there. Milton turns the metaphor into an irony. Darkness visible. All right, now, it features that these uh, lines from the poet and also from the scriptures feature this portion of the epistle of Jude. Particularly verse 6, eternal bonds under darkness, and verse 7, eternal fire. The juxtaposition of darkness eternal and fire eternal appears to be contradictory, paradoxical, antithetical. But it is not for Milton. Darkness visible. What is a visible darkness? All right, so let's try to grapple with this notion, and let's begin with the doctrine of hell in the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. We keep in mind that the person who talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible is Jesus Christ. Those who have counted up the statistics, I remember my great teacher John Gerstner emphasizing the fact that, you know, you, you, uh, you think Christ is, uh, is, is a kind of milksop, uh, you know, he's just a, a person going to pat you on the head and excuse you for your, uh, for your uh, sins, both gross and uh, ungross. No, <clears throat> because Jesus talks about hell three times to every one of any other writer of the Bible. Three to one. Jesus of Nazareth talks about hell. All right, so the greatest preacher of the doctrine of hell in the Bible is the Lord Jesus. So let's see what he says about the matter. Now, these are portions of what he comments on. Okay, This is not an exhaustive list of all of Christ's comment upon uh, hell. So let's, first of all, begin with Matthew 22. We'll just read one where we have more than one to read. So Matthew 5:22. if someone will read that out when you get to it, let's make a note about what he says about hell in that verse. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you're good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. He talks about hell as being a place of fire. That is also true in chapter 18, verse 9. It's not the only place where he talks about it in the Synoptic Gospels. But nonetheless, 
There's a place where Jesus talks about about hell being a place of fire. Now, turning over to Mark chapter 9, verses 43 and 44. 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out. 45, and if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. All right, now in 43, which is actually duplicated in 44, where that verse appears, you will notice that Jesus talks about hell being a place of fire, but this time he adds an adjective to it. It is unquenchable fire. So it is fire which cannot be put out. All right, now Matthew 18, 8, which will also be duplicated in 20. Let's, let's take a look at uh, 25, 41 in this case. 18, 8 will be, will be the same, but uh, nonetheless, let's take a look at Matthew 25, 41, which is the Olivet Discourse in Matthew's version. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Notice the language there, eternal fire. So we've had unquenchable fire, we have eternal fire. And in that same chapter, as we go down to verse 46, what do we read? Anyone? And these will go away, And these will go away into eternal punishments, but the righteous into eternal life. Notice the juxtaposition there between the eternals. Eternal life is matched by eternal punishment. Eternal punishment is the opposite of eternal life. So here, hell is called a place of eternal punishment. And finally, in chapter 25, verse 30. If you turn back to verse 30. This is true also of Matthew 8, 12, and 22, 13. Whoever has it, go ahead. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Hell is a place of darkness, outer darkness. All right, so we have a little taxonomy of Jesus' vocabulary with respect to hell. It is a place of fire. It is a place of unquenchable fire. It is a place of eternal and unquenchable fire. It is a place of punishment. It is a place of eternal punishment. It is a place of darkness, a place of darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. All right, so Jesus uses the very same kind of juxtaposed vocabulary that we find here for the description of hell in Jude verses 6 and 7. What fire then lights this place of darkness? If this is a place of darkness, in fact, eternal darkness, then what fire lights darkness? Darkness visible. What fire is it? Or is this just allegory? Is this just symbolism? Is this just metaphor? Ben? To the conscience? Hmm. 
What would Jonathan Edwards say is the fire that lights this place of darkness? Oh, it's been a long time since you read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, I think. Well, it's not just Edwards. It's actually Jesus and Jude as well. Okay, The fire that lights this place of darkness is the pure and perfect wrath of God. Now, it brings itself to bear upon the conscience, but nonetheless, this is a burning of God's wrath. Perfect burning of his wrath against the unrepentant. Well, then what darkness shadows this place of fire? If the fire that lights the darkness is the wrath of God, what darkness shadows this place of fire? You see, I'm playing with you. You see, I'm reversing the categories. You have to go either way with the language of Jude. Same way with the language of Jesus. You have to work both ways, backwards and forwards. So what's the darkness that shadows the place of fire? God. The absence of God. Very good. The absence of what in God? Fellowship. Grace. Mercy. Darkness. Light. The absence of the glory light of God. Yes, the absence of the Shekinah glory. That's what darkness shadows this place. All right, so we have then images which express... God's fire of justice with no light of mercy. The fire of his justice with no light of his mercy. Well, does that mean God is present in hell? God present in hell? Nancy, you know those omni words. What's that word omnipresent mean? He's everywhere. everywhere. He's ubiquitous, right? Yeah, he's ubiquitous. He's ubiquitous. Omnipresent. Everywhere present at once. Hell included? Yes. How so? How so? By his wrath. In his wrath, exactly. In his wrath. His perfect wrath and justice in the fiery condemnation and dark shadow of eternal death forever. Jonathan Edwards is the one who makes the most remarkable analysis of this, namely that God is not absent from hell. He is present there, but it is the way in which he is present there. He is not present there in beatitude or blessedness or the glory of his radiant shining face. He is there in terms of his perfect consuming wrath. Well, what about hell? Where is it? What's the location of hell? 6,000 feet down? That fiery ball at the core of the earth? Where is hell? Is it a place? Yes. yes. What kind of a place? Dormant. Dormant. Dormant? Torment. Torment. It's a place. No. What kind of a place? Oh. What's the nature of the place? Absence. I would say it was absence of God. Is it a spiritual place? 
Is it a spiritual place? A place for spirits? A place for souls? Okay, so it's a spiritual place because souls or spirits can be there. Any more than that? It has to be a real place. It has to be a real What do you mean by real? Well, everyone's going to be resurrected. Okay, so it's got to be a place which a resurrected body can be in, right? So it's got to be a material place in the sense that resurrected matter can be present there. So it's both spiritual and material. Jonathan Edwards again. I don't agree with this, but Jonathan Edwards believed that the new heavens and the new earth, which were going to emerge from the burning up of this earth, were going to be distant from the earth because when it was burned up, that which was burned was going to be the place where hell was. In other words, hell was going to be here on earth at the consummation. Interesting idea. I don't think he's right, but nonetheless, it's an interesting idea. Okay. What's the atmosphere of hell? Fire and brimstone. Okay, so there's a light of hell, which is that fiery flame, once again, of God's righteous justice. But there's also that darkness of hell. That's the atmosphere of hell, which is death. It is the shadow of eternal separation from the light of God's life. There is an atmosphere about this place called hell. So what about the sensations of hell? What about the senses in hell? Unending. That's its duration. That's not its sensation. Let's talk about pleasure. Are there any pleasures in hell? No, they are absent. All pleasures are gone. They are non-existent. Which means that all of the senses, eyes, ears, nose, taste, touch, all of the senses will provide no pleasure. Well, what will the senses provide then if they won't provide any pleasure? Nancy, your word. Torment, exactly. All that the eye sees in hell will torment it. All that the ear hears in hell will torment it. All that the nose smells in hell will torment it. All that the mouth tastes in hell will torment it. All that you touch in hell will torment you. There will be no pleasure in hell because only Christ Jesus gives pleasure forevermore. Only heaven delights the senses. Only heaven delights you with the beauty of the eye and the glory of the ear and the aroma of the nose and the taste of the mouth of that heavenly banquet feast and the touch, the touch of the Lord Jesus. At thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, verse 11 in the King James Version. The only place where there are pleasures forevermore is at the right hand of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. No pleasures in hell. No enjoyment in hell. Not but torment. 
Ah, but my drinking buddies will all be there and I want to be with my buddies. George Bernard Shaw, the famous playwright, famous atheist, said, all the interesting people will be in hell. I'd rather be where the interesting people are. Exactly. You're not going to have any friends in hell, drinking buddies or otherwise. Is hell a place of friendship? Hell is a place of hatred. Even those who liked you here will hate you there, and you will hate them too, because hell is a place of eternal, unremitting hatred. The friends will torment you, and you will torment them in return. Because there is no love in hell. There is no charity in hell. There is no kindness in hell. There is no comfort in hell. There is no rest in hell. There is no peace in hell. There is none. There won't be any friendship in hell at all. This is a case where misery will not love company. Misery will hate company. And it will hate it. Forever. So we come to the question of the duration of hell. After a billion years in hell, it will only have just begun. It will endure as long as God's perfect wrath and justice endure. How long will God endure? He is eternal. How long will hell endure as long as God endures eternally? That's what Jesus said. Eternal fire, eternal punishment. Hell is as eternal as heaven. Can the word of God pass away? Can hell pass away? If the word of God can pass away then so can hell. But if the word of God cannot pass away, neither can hell. If the word of God is endless, never-ending, eternal, and everlasting, then so is that domain for those who hate it, for those who despise it, for those who immorally rebel Against it. There is no point in which life and hell will ever be over. Never ending, everlasting torment without end. As my teacher John Gerstner used to say, Jonathan Edwards was the most graphic preacher of hell in the American consciousness, perhaps in the whole history of Christian preaching. But when Jonathan Edwards went to heaven, they told him, Jonathan, you weren't even close. For if you think about what Paul says, I hath not seen what God has prepared for those who loved him. The antithesis of that is equally true. 
If you cannot imagine the glories of heaven, and Paul couldn't describe it when he was caught up into it. Remember that? He couldn't say what he had seen it could, because human language couldn't express it. It was so wonderfully beautiful, so, lo- so lovingly attractive, so wonderfully peaceful that human words could not articulate it. The antithesis is equally true. Jonathan, you weren't even close. As vivid as you have made the torments of hell in the language that was at your disposal, your language is inadequate to express the degree of that torment. Now, if you want to take Pascal's wager, then roll the dice. I remember looking at a man about six or eight years ago who was denying the gospel that he had professed. And I said to him, are you willing to roll the dice? Are you willing to risk your eternal future for eternal torment? And tragically, sadly, rebelliously and arrogantly, he said, I'll gamble on rolling the dice. Because he had come to believe that there was no God at all. Well, isn't that convenient? You see, if you are going to avoid hell, the easiest way for you to avoid it is deny that it's even there. We have a culture that lives in continual denial. The denial of everlasting justice, the denial of an ultimate judgment seat, the denial of an appearance before your maker is a part of this culture. It's a lot easier to deny it and live for all the gusto you can get because you only go around once, right? So you got to grab for all the gusto you can get while you're here. Because when you're done, well, what are you going to grab for then? If Jesus is right, if the Bible is right, if even those pagans who have sensed that there's got to be something more than judgment in this world, even they felt that the world's judgment wasn't adequate to deal with the horrid, wicked sins that people have committed. And there had to be some other level in order to make them pay up, so to speak. Now, if the pagans could imagine that, and you've got the revelation of this book... then you understand that we're not going to roll the dice. We're not going to gamble on whether Jesus is right or not. Because if he's wrong, suppose for the sake of argument that he's wrong. Suppose there is no eternal fire. 
Suppose there's no eternal darkness. Suppose there's no eternal punishment. Suppose there's not. And I believed that there was. But there's not. What did I lose? What did I lose? You see, if there isn't any hell and we believed a lie, we haven't anything to lose. But if there is, then what do we have to gain if we don't believe in Christ? You get the point, don't you? That if Christ is right about hell, he's right about heaven. If he's wrong about both, we just vaporize into annihilation. But if he's right, we have everything to lose if we don't believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved from our sins. All right, I've left some little juxtapositions at the bottom of the page. Hell is all black flame, all fiery darkness, flameless, lightless, flames, lightless, darkness, visible, and death, living. You see, you play with the irony of the language because the language is there in the New Testament text, both Jude and Jesus and other parts of of the New Testament. We come to grips then with the kind of dynamic irony of hell, which is darkness visible, flames lightless, eternal and unending. Any questions or comments? Yes. Comment. Um, When you were talking about the atrocities that go on now that have been going on for ages. Yet Christ still came down to this very same world for us. Yes, he came and visited this world of darkness. Any other comments? Yes, Robert. Uh, I am to assume then you're a, a fan of Pascal. I'm a fan of Pascal. No, but I'm interested in his wager, particularly when somebody throws it up in my face. Yeah. Yeah. Or here when it says uh, seven of these. He's a Roman Catholic. I'm not a fan, fan of, a, of a Roman Catholic in that sense, but a Roman Catholic in this case said something right, and so I picked that one out. Go ahead, Pam. Oh, well, it says um, in seven, in my Bible, it says suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And then I was looking at this one, it says the punishment of eternal fire. So vengeance and Punishment are the same thing? Vengeance is a paraphrase of the Greek word that's used here. It's punishment, but God is taking vengeance in punishing. So it is a relative synonym, but it wouldn't be the best choice, in my opinion. Punishment is the best choice for the Greek word. Would you consider that the wrath? Yes, it's the wrath of God. You know, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. That's his wrath in action. Okay, so it has the idea of repayment. But the Greek word is more uh, more strictly punishment. Thank you. Yes, Nancy. Um, you know, in the Lord's Prayer, or the 23rd Psalm, it says, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. 
does that mean that they're actually going to see this? I'm, I'm just, this is kind of... The rich man can see Lazarus, can he not? Yes. Yes. All right, now that is a parable. I don't think the 23rd Psalm is referring to an eschatological seeing, okay? I think it's referring to David's experience of God taking care of him in the presence of his enemies, naming the Philistines, Saul, um, Saul chasing him all the time, even, uh, even Nabal's uh, enmity against him. Okay, um, but taking your idea and pushing it uh, to the, the parable that Jesus tells in Luke's Gospel, that's raised the issue of whether those in hell will be conscious of those in heaven, or they can see that, and whether those in heaven can see those in hell. Because it's a parable, we can't push it too far. We do know, as Paul says, that we will judge the angels. In other words, we will be in the judgment at, uh, at the second coming of Christ, in which the damned angels and the damned souls will be consigned to hell forever. We will be present in that judgment. We will not... Uh, be uttering any judgment ourselves. Christ will be uttering it, but we will join him in uttering that judgment. And they will be cast out into the lake of eternal fire forever. Now, does that mean we'll be able to see them? Mm, I'm not sure. Jonathan Edwards was, was persuaded that we could. In fact, that that would increase the torment of those in hell and increase the blessedness of those in heaven. The blessed in heaven would see that from which they had been eternally delivered, and the damned in hell would see that which they, that they were eternally missing. So in other words, it kind of turns the screws even further. Uh, I'm willing to listen to Edwards on that point. I'm not saying he's wrong, but I'm not saying he's right either. I don't know what to do with some of that biblical language. Scott? One one other passage that deals with the same issue, of course, is Isaiah 66, 24, and they will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled against me and the world will not die. Edwards used that passage to prove that point. What What do you think? I'm not sure that that's anything other than a vision of uh, human conquest, you know. So I don't know whether I I want to extrapolate that into an eschatological vision. But uh, thanks for noting it. You're absolutely right. That is a passage that Edwards uses for that notion that that they will see the damned in hell. I suppose if it's a place of darkness, they're going to have to have some way of seeing it. Yes, well, they'll obviously be able to enter into the light that is visible in that darkness, somehow. (laughs) Yes, David. Lord Jesus not only saved me from hell, he saved me from myself. And those who go into eternity without Christ correspondingly are not saved from themselves and if the Lord hadn't intervened in my life salvation hadn't come I would have descended as low as Joseph Stalin or anybody else given enough time there, but for the grace of God, go we all, David, do we not? Yeah. So we praise him once again for his wonderful mercy to our own wretched souls. <clears throat> Shall we pray? Father, you have prepared heaven as a place of wonderful glory 
for those whom you call unto yourself by your transforming grace. Yes, fornicators, adulterers, homosexuals, drunkards, swindlers, vile persons from all kinds of gross and immoral sinful lifestyles. And we praise you that you are powerful enough to take that lifestyle away from them by your transforming power, your regenerating grace, and wash them by the grace of the Holy Spirit. Cleanse them in the blood of your Son, the Lamb of God, and to set them with joy before your face in the radiance of your light of glory, where there is no darkness, nor is there any night. We thank you, Lord, for delivering your people from that which we deserve, the eternal torment of damnation of hell. We thank you for the alert and warning of the scripture passages to it, and we pray for your elect in this generation that you will gather them in, you will deliver them out of the wrath to come and preserve them in the life, death, and resurrection of your dear Son, our Savior, who sits in the light of your eternal glory, where there is no night anymore. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.